This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Earl Sampson Folk. And the day after Kawhi Leonard made his decision, Paul George was traded to the Clippers. I am joined today by my colleague Matt Schantz over at Raptors Public. Matt, how are you doing today, man? I am doing rather well, all things considered. All things considered. Now, maybe you can elaborate on that and that'll get us going on the podcast. <laughs> all things considered. Yeah, I think yesterday was generally an overly optimistic day for Raptors fans, considering we just lost our best player for nothing in free agency. Um, but we're champs, so you you can't take away the banner. So life is uh, life is pretty grand. I think I agree with that. I was on CBC yesterday, and that was pretty much my takeaway. It was like, well, you know, things are still pretty good. We're the champs. It sucks <laughs> that he left, but you can never take away the banner. And some NBA teams, they never get it and maybe never will. That's, I guess that's how the league works. Kawhi Leonard isn't Robin Hood for every team, but he was for us for one year, sharing the wealth. Exactly. First, yeah. 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 And the first thing I want to talk about then is obviously that. So I'll frame it for us. He left for the Clippers. A lot of stuff happened. Paul George, now his teammate there. I think the first question is this a reflection of the no one wants to play in Toronto problem or narrative? I can't remember a finals MVP ever leaving his team before. Is this a stark reminder that no matter what, the Raptors can never play in free agency? Or is Kawhi just a unique and driven player who takes what he wants? Is it a bit of both? What do you think? I think that uh, there will be people who use this to support the narrative that players do not want to sign in Toronto. But if you look over the last five years, um, anybody the Raptors have wanted to keep, they've kept. And that's been a real success from the Masai Ujiri era. 
but as far as Kawhi goes, um, it was clear all along, or I, I guess in hindsight, you know, we had the whole he stay movement. Um, but looking at it all, he wanted to go home. He wanted to be in LA. He had his sights set on that. And so it wasn't a matter of Toronto can't keep players. It was Toronto can be successful, but the player empowerment movement is here and that's okay. It's as long as he, um, came, he lived out his contractual obligations then it's fine. And that was always the case. Living out the contractual obligations. What a way to put it. That's a, <laughs> a very succinct. It sounds dystopian almost. I guess, so what is the thing that separates Toronto then? Because if Toronto's able to keep free agents, and we'll dive into the narrative a little bit, maybe we can dispel it. Toronto's able to keep their incumbent free agents, sounds like. Kyle Lowry stayed, Serge Ibaka stayed, DeMar DeRozan stayed. All the guys sticking around. Kawhi Leonard did leave. But the Raptors, like many other teams... And the most important part of that statement, like many other teams, aren't players in getting big names in free agency. There's usually only about five or so teams that are able to accrue those types of players. Why do you think that it's only attributed to the Raptors not being able to play in free agency when teams like Charlotte are paying Rozier? Oklahoma City does not sign anybody in free agency. Not like we're used to seeing from maybe a Miami or L.A. What do you think about that? I think the difference in expectations is clear. Um, uh, Toronto has had successful blips throughout their history. Obviously, they've had a lot of failure, a lot of disappointing years and endings. Um, but the expectation is still that they are aiming to compete. They are wanting to be a championship contender. Masai has made that very clear during his time. The end goal was to get the ring and to get the banner, and we're there. Um, whereas I think we have that expectation because while we are outside of the U.S., we are still a large market. We have the financial means. We have a very wealthy ownership group um, and that kind of end goal. Whereas teams like Charlotte that you mentioned or Orlando or Sacramento or all those other teams that can't sign free agents, um, they don't have that same level of expectation and they also maybe have a little bit of a protective view as they are small markets and therefore they are limited. Toronto is a large market, therefore why do they struggle in that area? Okay, so let's dive in. Why do you think that the Raptors struggle in that area? What is what makes you worry? What is the truth to that? What is the false what are the false parts behind it? What's the truth to it? Up until now, I, I think that big chunk of it has been the failures of the franchise is, you know, we did not have a strong management group in place for a long time. And, and that's changed. We did not have a history to sell. Whereas we hear Pat Riley, you know, when he meets with free agents, he can plop down his bag of championship rings and they all hear the, the clinking of the jewelry. Um, so I wonder how much of that can change. And uh, I think the more, players leave Toronto and the narrative is that they are disappointed to be leaving Toronto. Like Lou will, he was disappointed when he left. Patrick Patterson was very disappointed when he left. Um, it's going to start to change that we hear more and more players talk about how they love being in Toronto, 
the NBA is becoming more international year by year. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a perpetual problem, particularly now that now that we have that gold, you know, touch on our collar of our jerseys, there's a little bit more credibility to what the franchise is capable of. You brought up that the Raptors, they have like a world-class franchise in a lot of ways, but also we've been emboldened and kind of a plucky upstart type of team for a long time. And maybe that's more so having to do with how the team was assembled, the, you know, Island of Misfit toys that where it began. But there's also, I think in Canada, looking outwards, towards the United States, kind of this pucky upstart feeling. The Raptors having won, does that feeling fall away? Do they have to grapple with something new where they've won and now they have to have some sort of fall from grace where they either have to rebuild or retool? What do you think about next year for them? Well, it entirely depends on what moves are made the remainder of the summer. I I don't think that we are in that championship picture, but can we make a a deep and solid playoff run? Potentially. Uh, I I think that the second round is a a clear objective and and should be an easy target if the team retains, you know, Lowry and Vassal and Ibaka and those key vets. Is there an outside chance at a conference finals? Potentially, depending on how the bracket breaks. Um, But after this year, there's going to be a lot of money available uh, and from the Raptors and free agency um, uh, stars are coming aligned in, in two years. And, you know, it's been a, a not so public secret that, uh, that Masai has his eyes set on Giannis. So there, there is a lot in play in the next couple of years that could change, or if nothing falls the Raptors way, they would be beginning a rebuild, uh, in earnest with Siakam, with OG, potentially with Fred, um, and just kind of starting over with the young pieces that they have in place. So it's we're kind of at that turning point, and anybody who, who bets on the Raptors right now either has some real inside secret or has a gambling issue. Yeah, I think that's the question, is the turning point. So mostly what I'm thinking about is you brought up that the Raptors are going to have an absurd amount of cap space after this year. They have the $30 million of Kyle Lowry's contract, $20 million of Serge Ibaka, and $26 million of Marcus All, all coming off the books. And then you also bring up the vaunted summer of 2021. Everybody's talking about Giannis will be a free agent. That's the idea, I think. What do the Raptors do? Do they hang out during that one year and try and save for the vaunted free agency? Or do they jumpstart things and maybe trade, like Bruce Bruce Arthur mentioned in his piece for the Toronto Star, maybe the Raptors look to jumpstart the rebuild, get assets for one of, maybe two of, Lowry, Gasol, or Ibaka. And like you said, they should be able to. And with Kyle Lowry leading the team, you have a young burgeoning star in Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi hopefully looking to make improvements, and the incumbent veterans like... Van Fleet, who now after that finals should be considered a veteran, Gasol a veteran, Ibaka a veteran. They can run it back and have lots of success. But looking towards the future, would you rather the Raptors go after regular season success and a decent playoff run? Or would you rather they try and jumpstart something and start building new? Me personally, I, I think I'd probably lean more towards run it back, have a fun year, have a year to celebrate 
um, celebrate Gasol, celebrate Lowry, celebrate Abaca and what they brought to this team and, and how they helped deliver a championship. Um, that's my sentimentality coming out that, that this was the most fun year that I've had um, being a basketball fan, being a Raptors fan, uh, being a Raptors writer, all of that. And it, it was just a, a real treat. And so to have a lot of those key players then leaving would be disappointing. It, it would it would kind of remove some of the grandeur of the moment for me. Um, so personally, I more so lean towards run it back, but it's also if somebody throws out an offer that can't be refused or is in the in the betterment of the long-term outlook of this franchise, I have no doubt that Masai would jump on that opportunity. He is very forward-thinking. He's shown that. So if somebody wants to give up assets for Gasol or Ibaka, great. If somebody really wants to pay for uh, for Lowry and there's an opportunity to send him somewhere that he could compete, I'd be happy for that. It would be really disappointing to see him leave, but that's kind of the the crux of where we're at. So I'm, I'm stuck between heart and head in, on this one. Right. And that's why I asked about the plucky upstart franchise and what we're perceived to be and how we transition from a championship team who loses their finals MVP, which is unheard of. Most teams, like even the Dirk Nowitzki team that won in 2011, they did have their fall from grace, but they still had their incumbent star. The Raptors directly after have to pivot at least in some way away from the Kawhi Leonard era, which only lasted one year. Would you rather, and I guess this is the conversation, right? The whole conversation. Masai Ujiri scoffed at sentimentality and tried to supercharge the team. He traded DeMar DeRozan and in came Kawhi Leonard. Do you think it's more likely or less likely that he scoffs at sentimentality this time and jumpstarts a rebuild with one of Kyle Lowry? Because... In a way, it's maybe there is a second or third round playoff run in this team. But also, listening to Masai in years past, that isn't what he wants. And is he looking to run it back strictly for those nice feelings? Or if things go bad, you have kind of those things stripped away from you without you trading it away. You just maybe a Kyle Lowry, Ibaka, Gasol, somebody has maladies and things just start falling apart and the team... That's a sadder version. Things like that happen. Would you like? What do you think Masai does, looking at his his body of work and his, I guess, the way he turns down sentimentality in that way? What do you think happens? Not what you want to happen, but what do you think would happen? I would guess that at least one of Lowry, Abaka, and Saul gets moved before uh, training camp opens. Um, likely a second by the trade deadline as teams are kind of gearing up for a, a finals push. Um, it's a unique situation across the league with uh, some unfortunate injuries to Clay Thompson. No one knows what his status will be like or his capabilities come playoff time. Durant is going to miss the year. And there's a lot of teams that view themselves as a prime contender to raise a banner. Um, and with that being the case, I think that it is going to be uh, a movement era this summer and, uh, and at the deadline where teams look to gear up and add those key pieces um, and have a few op- options available from the Raptors that have shown 
capable of winning a championship and being key contributors to that very recently, there's going to be some uh, some serious offers, I think. So I, I'm going to guess that he makes movement. Um, when you mentioned the Dallas situation, yes, they did still have their incumbent star in Dirk, but they, they made a lot of peripheral moves that changed their trajectory. And that's happened with franchises. The unique thing, I think, in this situation is while the Raptors haven't retained Kawhi in their incumbent star, they do have an up-and-coming, you know, successive star in Pascal Siakam. So I wonder if kind of the movement or the decision of the the direction that Masai chooses, that it'll be almost dependent on what he views as Siakam's ceiling. If he thinks Siakam can take another leap, maybe we just run it back and, and see what happens. If, uh, if he thinks that Siakam's leap or OG's leap is coming in two years, then maybe that's a sign that he is ready to make that move. What do you think is Siakam's ceiling? What do you think his leap looks like this year? If we're talking about it, I mean, what do you think, what do you think his trajectory is this year? I wonder if it's similar to DeMar and that each year we're going to see one or two new things. And even during the season, we see him adapt and learn on the fly. Um, I think what we already have is, is an elite two way player. He's likely top 20 uh, in the NBA already, which is insanity. Um, with a couple tweaks, maybe he can make it into the top 10, top 15. Uh, I'd like to see him kind of work on a little pull-up jumper. Uh, so catch and shoot from three, he's already you know, reasonably proficient at that, and I think that he'll improve. Um, he's good at attacking off the drive and has counter moves. But if he can kind of make that little step-up jumper from the mid-range... Um, with his adjustments and how he can kind of attack and, and alter his, uh, his directions, I think that will really open up the game for him as well as for passing angles. Interesting. I guess the thing I want to talk about regarding Pascal is there's two things. One, if the Raptors run it back, it'll be probably close to a top four seed, probably definitely top six. You could book that if they do run it back. Who gets the all-star bid between Pascal and Kyle? And then after that, if Kyle does go, what does Pascal look like truly as a number one option on offense? Because he is an unorthodox piece. Even in that 32-point game, he wasn't scoring. In the finals, I'm referring to. He wasn't scoring as a, a first option in that game. He was getting out on the break. He's taking advantage of pseudo-transition. And he was really... He scores in very unique ways, but maybe not stylistically like a number one option often scores. There are still the times where you get the clear out on the weak side and he can really take someone in the post. But there are the times we've seen him ISO and pull up are few and far between. Like you alluded to, maybe that's something he adds. So the all-star, who gets it, Kyle or Siakam, if they run it back? And if they don't run it back... What struggles and successes do you expect to see from Pascal as a number one option? If they run it back, I expect that Siakam will be the all-star. Uh, and I think that he will earn that very clearly. Um, I, I would, it wouldn't shock me if we hear his name in consideration for All-NBA at the end of the season. Um, and that's likely a, a little bit optimistic of me, but... 
he's a very, very talented player. And I, based on his work ethic and how he's grown over the last two years, um, it's on the table. It's, it's, it's an option for him to pursue. In regards to what it would look like for him as a primary option, probably a little bit clunky at first, and he would need to be surrounded by more shooters. Uh, so you need to have somebody like Fred as an outlet, as a secondary creator, um, having a, a big beside him who can stretch the floor while also passing. So a Gasol-type player um, fits that mold well and that he can, uh, he can help create those looks for Siakam as well as help, uh, help open the floor with screens or with shooting. Um, so he would need a roster kind of built towards his, his tendencies um, but with the Raptors free flowing style, they already have a lot of those options available. Good. Yeah, I think so. The last question I'll ask about Pascal before we move on to the wing position, Stanley Johnson, OG and the hole there is we've seen bigs, particularly fours and fives. When that guy is the best on your team, it's really, really hard to just waltz into the playoffs. Whereas if you have a really good lead guard, a la Dame, DeMar, Kyle, CJ, the Portland, Toronto guys, and now the Spurs for with DeMar, you can get into the playoffs genuinely because you run a lot of pick and roll. They have the ball in their hands a large percentage of the regular season. What do you think the Raptors, if it does come down to Pascal playing the four, we've seen teams with Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins, Carl Anthony Towns all struggle to have really strong regular seasons when their best player is at the big man position. How would you, and this is your answer, and then what do you think Masai would do as far as building around Pascal? I know you mentioned shooters, but are there any players or roles you think specifically besides just shooting? Uh you would need a, a couple of people who are good at slashing. Um, I, I think that's something that Siakam has shown to be a, a strength of his is finding people off movement. So if he's in the post or he's dribble, uh, he's on the attack that he and Pirtle, for example, had excellent chemistry that he, he created lots of dump off opportunities for him. And uh, he found both Gasol and Serge for some looks uh, this year as well as kicking it to corners. So I, I think you need people who um, are good read and react because that's, you know, Pascal has made it, has said as much uh, that he doesn't really plan out what he's doing. It's, it's a read and react type of situation. So he see, he waits to see how the defense is responding to him and then tries to adjust on the fly. So the more high IQ players that you have to find those open space and to reorient, to slash when needed, um, I, I think that's been a, a real hallmark of what Masai has looked for in the draft and uh, in free agency is players who, players who think the game at a high level and a fast level so that they can uh, adjust. And what do you think Masai would do? Is it, do you think Masai has the same game plan for Siakam's future as you? I would guess so. Um, the rumored Paul George conversation, and uh, it's come out obviously that the Raptors were a leverage play in that. Um, but the the move fell apart, uh, according to all reports, when 
OKC asked for Siakam to be included. Um, he was a, a no-go and a refusal in the Kawhi Leonard conversations. And so it's he is clearly the focus right now of the franchise long-term as a, uh, as a tool and a player for contention themselves as well as a, a recruitment based on his um his low cap hold uh next summer his uh, high level of play uh his personality i, I think people are going to want to play with him and um it's he's going to be a draw those are good answers i like that a lot i think well i think it's it steps towards a really really big conversation that i don't think either you or i are going to be the ones to have but do big men drive teams or do guards drive teams? Like, are big men the ceiling lifters and are guards the floor lifters? And can Pascal be the incumbent star to lead them? I think is going to be a super interesting question going forward. And just one slot down at the three, the small forward position, the Raptors now have a gaping hole. They recently signed Stanley Johnson for two years, $7.5 million. They have their incumbent, lovable son, OG Ananobi sitting there ready to reprise his role from his rookie year, I assume. And so you have around Pascal, we were just talking. And Kyle maybe is there, maybe isn't. We'll see. But we're talking about surrounding Pascal with shooters. And you have Stanley Johnson, who I think is shooting splits in 6,000 minutes, is like 37% from the field, 29% from three. You have OG Ananobi, who, when he has his feet set, is a really good shooter. Well, maybe not really good, but is a, a decent shooter, decent enough, and has little to no pull-up game. Like you said before, though, having high IQ guys who can cut and slash the basket is important. Both Stanley Johnson and OG Ananobi, specifically OG, have flashed that, and OG is really good finishing around the rim. How do you think that position bears out for the Raptors during this regular season? OG, I'm sure, will get the position, but how do you think he does in it? I'm expecting a, a leap, not quite a, a Siakam level, but I think that uh, we're going to see some things from OG this year. And I, I will happily admit it, I'm an OG homer. I was um, thrilled when we drafted him. He was my target uh, the entire year. Uh, and just was shocked when he fell as far as he did. Um, defensively, he's there. Um, as you said, when he gets his foot feet set, his shot is is reasonably effective. Um, and he, he's not quite getting uh, attention at that level yet. Um, but I think the summer is going to be a big one developmentally for him. Um, hopefully he gets healthy and he's ready to go. Um, with his, uh, his ability to cut, I think that that will be helpful. So... He will be a primary starter for the team. I think that he'll go through little waves of, uh, of success and waves of struggle with uh, as teams adjust to him. But um, I think that we're going to see a, a great year from OG. But in regards to starters, it wouldn't shock me if both OG and Stanley Johnson were starters this year. In regards to, we lost both Danny Green and Kawhi. Um, and I wonder if OG, with his ability to chase guards and kind of being a more switchable unit, whether we could see a group of Lowry, OG, Stanley Johnson, Pascal Siakam, and either Serge or Gasol as a starting unit. That would be interesting. 
I really, I would be shocked if they started OG at the two. That would that would definitely be something. I'd be a fan of it though. Um, a long time ago, for a different site actually, I wrote about how the pull up three changed the NBA, citing Steph Curry, Kyle Lowry, and Victor Oladipo. Steph Curry for helping incite the change, and then how Kyle Lowry and Victor Oladipo both completely revolutionized their own games by incorporating the pull up three. Both Kyle Lowry and Victor Oladipo, their percentages at the rim went up 10% shooting after they incorporated the pull-up three and started shooting it at a decent rate. OG Ananobi was pretty horrendous as a a pick-and-roll ball handler and as a guy coming off of dribble handoffs. It He does have a limited dribble package right now, but also, like I said earlier, he's he's kind of horrible when pulling up. He shot like 16% on pull-up threes this year. He doesn't take them very often, and he's much better when he's setting his feet. But also, there are times during his rookie year and during his sophomore year where we saw him coming downhill, making advanced passes to the corners or to the dunker spot, and he has flashed vision that is actually really great. Do you think that going forward, if he wants to be more than a 3 and D player, and like you were saying, you expect to jump this year, is he jumping towards a 3 and D player, more of a Trevor Ariza where he's just going to keep working on those corner triples, those set shot triples and playing more defense, chasing guards around screens. Like you said, he's an incredible isolation defender already. Or does he take a step towards some of those actions where he's, you know, operating in the dribble handoff or the pick and roll? Where do you think he steps towards? And what do you think is an identifier of who he is? Is it the vision that we've seen? Or is it the the lack of the pull-up and the, the lack of the dribble? Which do you think is more, I guess, indicative of where he's headed? I think opening up the dribble packages is an intriguing idea because, as you said, we have seen little glimpses of, of his passing acumen. It's, um, but in order to get to those moments, um, he needs to be able to, to create a little offense on his own. So be able to attack more off of non-straight lines, um, have a little bit tighter of a handle. That was what really opened up the game for DeMar DeRozan. That was kind of his first big lip. Uh, first big leap was when he, uh, when he was actually able to successfully dribble around opponents. And um, so that will be a, a step that OG definitely needs to work on and to tighten. Um, primarily, I still think that he'll be a, a three and D I, player. I don't know if he'll ever get to the point where he is a creator for others on a, um, even secondary level, but as having a high, high level kind of fourth option, uh, in the, in the dribble rankings, um, that's still a, an elite player in regards to building a successful core. Does that seem at all sobering from where maybe, I know you and I both rate him really highly, but it was kind of crazy after that first year. He was fantastic. He was hitting game-tying threes against the Cavs in the playoffs in the dying seconds. He was one of the net rating gods of the NBA in his rookie year. And he shot a better percent from downtown. He generally excelled at things that people didn't think he would excel at in his first year. It was like walking on air. Is that take saying, you know what, I think it is just 3 and D for OG. Is that sobering compared to where we thought, you know, maybe this guy does take a step towards a Kawhi-esque career? 
he's got a lot of similarities to Kawhi in regards to physical build and defensive tools. And I think that's why it was a fun and hopeful comparison to make, even if not a realistic one. Um, but in regards to, is it disappointing if he becomes a, a elite three and D player? I, I don't think so. Um, he can still add other elements to his game, but, uh, what you were saying in regards to being a, a plus minus God and, and hitting game tying three pointers. And he can still do all of those things, even if he doesn't become a primary option um, and having somebody capable of that, who's not being guarded regularly by a, a primary defender. Um, that's still necessary to win in the NBA. And so is it disappointing if he only becomes an elite role player? I don't think so. That's it, it's an unfair expectation to put on somebody that they have to become a top 20 player in order to be a successful part of a roster. It's very rare that that comes along and just look at Siakam. We never saw it from him. Oladipo, it was not expected of him after years of struggle. Um, so it could still come. It could be a surprise. But if he just becomes a know your role, excel in that, and help your team dominate when you're on the floor, well, if your team's dominating with you, then you're doing well. I suppose. Well, the reason I use the term sobering is it's kind of a step back from the expectations and also looking at wing players like a an Otto Porter Jr., or Harrison Barnes, guys who play defense and hit triples, but maybe don't pass as well as we thought. They get paid a little bit much because of their physical profile and their ability to hit shots and their defense, and then people immediately become kind of disappointed with who they are as a player. So I wondered if um, OG had something like that in his future, or if we can hold back going from where in his rookie year we were saying, well, this guy might be the next Kawhi Leonard, to now we have to say... Maybe he's just an elite 3 and D guy, which, as you mentioned, is a great thing to be able to say, but is different than what was initially said. And then, like the Boston Celtics fans who are having to deal with maybe saying that Jason Tatum isn't a lock for an MVP candidate in three years, which is what mostly everybody thought after his first year. So it's just dealing with that step back, maintaining the, the frame you're looking at everything in. I, I, I guess. It, Sorry. I ahead. guess. I guess it depends on how realistically you assumed that possibility was. Uh, for me, whenever the uh, Kawhi Leonard comparison came up, and that was a, a hopeful thing, it was still maybe this is a zero point zero five percent chance that he could get to that level because it is such rarefied air to um, to become that type of player. Uh, so. If somebody thought that that was a reasonable expectation or a 10% expectation um, that he could become that, then yes, I can see why it would be sobering. But it all depends on your um, perspective of what likelihood was that to happen. And am I... Sorry, go ahead. Am I saying that it's completely off the table? Not at all. He still has the physical profile. He still, as you said, has a, a bit of a... Uh, passing acumen that has been uh, a surprise to to most 
he's an elite defender already, and you know there's areas that he could improve, kind of uh, off ball. Um, he's working on his uh, his shooting touch. Um, the pull up jumper is kind of the toughest to to add to your game, so maybe that could come in the future as he develops uh, more feel. Um, so it's all those tools are still there. It's just a matter of what percentage chance do you think that it could actually happen? Yeah. Well, I guess what spurs this on, right, is the the role he was cast in this year. He was asked to create a lot more, and it did seem like the Raptors were grooming him towards something rather than just the sticking to the 3 and D thing. Even when I was in Toronto and I asked Nick Nurse about it, he did say before OG had his really unfortunate appendectomy, was that they're looking more towards getting OG towards something more like a role rather than trying to have him create and do all those things that he was asked of this year, which might have been he was miscast in that role a little bit. And I'm not sure if that was just from what they saw practices or in the summer or if that was, you know, looking at the same thing that everybody else was after his rookie year and saying, like, maybe let's push OG to transform into a different type of player. And maybe we're looking at a more solid type of player and something he's growing towards that isn't that, but is still very good, as you as you alluded to. The next thing, I asked you beforehand to theory craft a trade proposal, one that you would be very happy with, a dream trade of yours. That is also somewhat realistic. What do you have for us? Okay, so for starters, let's make it clear that you gave me 20 minutes to work on this dream trade proposal. <laughs> um, so it's not like you asked me several days. Uh, it's it's hard to put together a package that I could see one working financially to incentivizing the Raptors enough to deal with it. Um, and three, it's at this moment, Gasol and Ibaka are um, great role players, but there's not a lot of need right now for starting centers across the NBA. Now, granted, Gasol would be an upgrade over many, so would Abaka, but enough to incentivize a team to take on additional salary um, when the Raptors wouldn't want to take on more than kind of two years of money um, in incoming contracts uh, to keep open that summer of 2021. So as I messed around with it, I was looking to see who could be interested in what types of players and Lowry to the Nuggets um, kind of caught my eye a little bit. They could use another guard. Uh, they could use a, a defender at the point of attack, and, and Lowry brings that as well as he um, is good on switches, as you know, we all know that nobody can post Lowry. Um, and the Nuggets are at a point where they are ready to compete and they see themselves in that championship picture. Um, so what I came up with, and it obviously needs to be tweaked a little bit, would be we take on the final year of Plumlee's contract. Uh, we get three years of Will Barton at $12 million. Uh, and then we also get Monty Morris and a first-round pick. So the incentivize for the Raptors is we get a 2020 first-round pick to kind of add to the uh, the Hall of Young Players. Monty Morris showed a lot this year as a, as a young point guard in the league. Will Barton gives them a shooting guard option, and Plumlee is just kind of the, the salary filler. Um, and while we are sending out Lowry, which would be really hard, we're at least sending him somewhere that he could compete and kind of doing right by him in that way. So 
that was my my rough uh, rough come up in the last twenty minutes. I think that's actually really funny because oddly enough, um, when I was doing my interview yesterday on CBC, they asked me the same question, and my take was that Kyle Lowry to the Nuggets, who could use him, and also it would be nice to get back a first round pick and maybe a Will Barton was what I said. So that's really funny that our brains went to the same place. I feel like that's a, a good point to to say that we're going to get into the Twitter questions. So listener, that's, that's coming soon. Welcome back to the Raptors weekly podcast. Still hosting Samson Folk, still joined by the fantastic Matt Schantz. And we're going to answer some Twitter questions. The first Twitter question is from myself, but not via Twitter. Matt, you have spurned coffee for so long. Even changing the fabric of Raptors Republic morning coffee segments by changing it to morning tea for one terrible morning. What makes you drink tea instead of coffee outside of the... Oh, obviously it's healthier. Forget that. Make another case. Come on, man. All right. Here's here's my argument. Coffee is disgusting. It is bitter and unpleasant. And people only drink it because they've been socialized to believe that it's uh, it's a positive for them. And that's my whole argument. It is it is awful. The only good thing about coffee is the smell. Why don't we just get together and eat a bunch of caramels? <laughs> the goodwill yeah. hunting. And, and tea is lovely. It's, you know, you can have different kinds. There's different flavors. You can uh, still add kind of different flavor profiles to it. And it's just, you get a nice Earl Grey or a nice chai and, uh, and you're just, you're in heaven. That's, I have a, a confession to make. I've always liked coffee better than tea. But I've always hated myself for it because I've always revered tea drinkers I don't know if it's the association in my head with not only the high society sounding accent of the British, but that tea dates back. It's not a British thing. It's a, a far, I suppose it'd be Far East thing. It's Chinese. It's Japanese. It dates back mm-hmm. there. And that seems regal and important and ancient. And I revere that in a way. And so I think every time I'm drinking coffee, I view myself as a plebeian. And I view someone like yourself <laughs> with the last name Shantz and a tea drinker in the morning. I think you're operating on, an, on a different wavelength. And your body probably thanks you for it, too. What's your favorite type of tea? Earl Grey tends to be my go-to. Um, but if I'm out at like a, a tea place, uh, a, a nice chai. So I, I prefer black teas. Um, but if you, if you really want to get something good, creamed Earl Grey, it's like Earl Grey with some, uh, some vanilla in it is just amazing. If, uh, if you put a little bit of honey and a touch of milk, it's just, it's perfect. Do you have any other food takes that run counter to the initial beliefs of people, the, the unsocialized or socialized take? All right. This is going to potentially anger some people egg (laughs) eggs are are disgusting i do not understand somebody just sitting down and eating eggs are you denying like do you hate them being included in things or just like a boiled egg and just eating an egg 
if they are included in things like a cake or something like that, fine. That's great. But just on their own, like scrambled eggs, an omelet, hard boiled, over easy, however you want to do it, gross. Wow. I love scrambled eggs. You mix in a little cheese. I'm a big fan of that. So, yeah, but eggs, I could see why eggs are kind of like meh. Definitely wouldn't judge anyone for not wanting to eat them. Well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) The next question is from Sean Woodley, the co-author of We the Champs, a very, very popular book about the Raptors championship run. Sean Woodley says, if you're forced to bet money, one of Matt Thomas or Stanley Johnson making an all-star team next year, who would it be? And then adds, geez, maybe I'm more sad than I thought. What do you think? I think that Sean has a gambling problem if he is asking this type of question to us. Uh, But I guess if you have to pick, I would say Stanley Johnson because he will probably have a more defined role with the team next year. Um, Unless Matt Thomas can show that he can hold up defensively, he will be brought in as as an option to shoot just kind of on, on a few possessions here and there. But Stanley Johnson with a, his op, with his ability to defend will just be included in, in more lineups. Maybe let's alter this then. And who's more likely to make All-Star Weekend? Because maybe Matt Thomas finds a Steve Novak role and finds himself in the three-point competition. Is that more likely than Stanley Johnson participating in an All-Star game? Because I think it is, actually. Very, very very easily more likely. Yeah. Um, Matt Thomas, I could clearly see with his shooting acumen going in as a, into the three, three point shot. Uh, but Stanley Johnson, I, I think you'd have to find a family member of his who believes that he's, uh, he's going to be an all-star and that's the only people who would bet that way. Derek Rose won MVP, man. Anything can happen. You never really know. Nick Spicer asks, who else is left for us to sign? 2019-20 projection. The one name that I'm kind of keeping an eye on just because I'm curious what his contract will look like is Rondé Hollis Jefferson. I I like a lot of what he does. He's just not a a shooter and the Raptors have had success with that type of player before. And, you know, somebody who excels in a lot of different areas of the game, but just doesn't quite have that well-rounded offense to themselves. Um, so he's somebody very easily who, if he signs at or near the minimum, I think that he could very, very clearly outplay his contract. We had, we had talked about this on the other podcast we did with Adam and you brought up the same thing that you really like Rondé Hollis Jefferson and I do too. And the next question is, who would you rather take a flyer on Trey Lyles or Rondé Hollis Jefferson? For me, it would be Rondé. I, I think that we have a lot of, well, maybe not a lot. We've got enough uh, people in the front court who have their options. So we could play OG at power forward. Siakam fits there. Stanley uh, is big enough for some power forward minutes. We've got Gasol. We've got Abaka. So there's a lot of big bodies, whereas with, um, with Kawhi and Green gone, we could use a, a few more minutes or, or options available at the wing rotation. Um, so I would likely go with Rondé over, over Trey. 
Um, and I think what he brings is a little bit more consistent. I think for me, I would go with Trey Lyle simply for the fact that he is from where I'm from. He's from Saskatoon. And maybe that <laughs> opens up an avenue for me to get insider information. I say, hey, man, you're from the same spot on the map that I'm from. Does this have meaning to you? Maybe it does. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't. Hopefully, hopefully we can work something out, man. The next question from Guatam. G underscore Malcony, do the Raptors compete with this team or do they absorb contracts and try to land big names in 2021? We discussed this already and ad nauseum maybe, but a firm yes or no, which do you think it is? I think that they, um, that they trade at least one of the vets. So I don't think that they look to compete and go as far as possible. Um, I think that they are a playoff team likely around the sixth seed, um, but begin the process of, of starting the rebuild towards 2021. Yeah, definitely. I think my favorite yeah. question on here is from Robert A. Santa, at Rob Santa. I have zero regrets, and last year was the best thing ever. Moving forward, who will make up Benchmob 2.0? What lineups are you most excited to see Nick run with? And you mentioned OG Ananobi at the two, so I'll let you take this one. Yeah, so I, I think that starting, um, just the Raptors really were a switchable team last year between all their defensive wing options. Uh, so it wouldn't shock me based on the current rotation if it's Lowry at point guard, OG at shooting guard, uh, you know, just kind of nominally. Uh, we've got Stanley Johnson at small forward, Siakam at power forward, and then Gasol starting at center, which means that the bench mob would be, and I think we're probably on bench mob like 3.0 or 4.0 at this point, uh, but it would be, we've got Fred, we've got Norm, um, Abaka is in there. I think that sometimes we'll see, we'll see more opportunity for Chris Boucher this year uh, as he develops. Um, who am I forgetting? I know I've got some people. Malcolm, no. <laughs> Malcolm, yes, thank you. Uh, Malcolm's ability to shoot, I think that he, uh, and he's also a, a good defender. He's ready for the NBA in that sense. Um, and then we'll bring in Matt Thomas as the occasional gunner. But based on being a, a little less uh, high-end talent this year, obviously, um, I would be... Uh, Surprised if we see as many all bench lineups this year as we did um, did last year. I have a question of my own. Not only did you just forget Malcolm Miller now, but in your end of season <laughs> thanks, where you listed everyone, you also forgot Malcolm Miller. What's the deal, man? That's Blake Murphy's best friend. What are you doing? I don't know. It's clearly a blind spot in my brain, and it's it's just uh. It slips my slipped my memory somehow. At least uh, Malcolm Mim Miller stands didn't uh, attack me as much as the Jeremy Lin fans did. They really turned on me fast. So that was uh, I'm thankful for Malcolm Miller fans that way. Well, you know that's a good thing, right? Is the Malcolm Miller is his fame is only preceded by his his fans' fame. They're known for their civility. <laughs> And the Malcolm Miller stands are a very vaunted group and beloved and revered in the NBA Twitter social sphere. And I'm, I'm so glad that they're a part of it. 
the three people, they're they're fantastic. They're also tea drinkers. <laughs> and maybe that camaraderie they have with you as far as drinking tea was what made them not attack you in that way. And shockingly, yeah, shockingly, um, we move on to the next question. In Maasai, I trust, says, if this season has taught me one thing, Bobby Webster should be spending the next two seasons stalking Giannis. I'm just saying. What do you think about this? I know you said it has been rumored. Obviously, we would all love the idea of Giannis coming to Toronto. Is that viable? If so, how viable? Is it something worth sinking an immense amount of time into? Are we grooming him? What's happening there? It's. I think it's viable. I. I I do. Um, what percentage I would put it at? Probably not very high. Um, maybe 5% chance. Uh, and that number drops if Milwaukee somehow gets the uh, gets a banner up in the next two years. Um, but Masai goes back a long way with Giannis. So that is positive. There's We see regularly that free agency decisions are based on... Um, often on trust most of all. So there's finances, there's trust with an organization and its management. Um, location is clearly a, a big draw for, for some players, but um, having that successful franchise with a, with a management team that you has shown to be reliable, um, I think that puts the Raptors in position for Giannis. Plus he's a, you know, he loves Milwaukee, so obviously he should love Toronto as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm hopeful. I'm I'm talking myself into it. Do I expect it to happen? No. That's that's looking too far out and uh anybody who's who's counting that chicken, it's uh there's a lot of eggs left in the in the way. It would be something to have Giannis come, but to have his jump shot struggles still mar his existence on the court and for that to become the frustration of the fan base. If that were to stop us from getting to the next level, I think that would be kind of like us transcending what Raptors fandom has always been about, which is like, well, the young guns, Sonny Weems, Damar and Amir Johnson, maybe they'll be (laughs) something someday. Whereas we had one great year, seriously, one great year with Kawhi Leonard and we won it all. And maybe that just stands alone as this beautiful shining beacon of hope, but having to deal with a superstar who's like, yeah, we just can't, we can't do it. And somebody who's so obscenely talented like Giannis, whereas DeMar in the past, yes, he did have his struggles, but we knew that. He had built himself into something, whereas Giannis is this otherworldly athletic person and has so many gifts that DeMar didn't have and clearly operates on such a level that DeMar hasn't been able to get to. For him to come and to still struggle with the jump shot would be some sort of terrible thing. But... I'd still love him to come if Giannis is listening. Trust me, man. I believe in you. Okay. With with how reactionary the Raptors fan base can be and has been, it does seem like our destiny to eventually sign a premier free agent, only to then have many, many fans disappointed with that. (laughs) Mari Carroll. Yeah. Mari Carroll. But (laughs) premier free agent. To a different level, like if if you could sign one of the top five players in the NBA as a free agent and like that just changes the destiny of the franchise, there's going to be some people who then see that as a negative eventually. 
That's just yeah. going to happen. And it reflects bad upon the fan base, which is why mm-hmm. when Kawhi signed with the Clippers, I was like, not even sad. I was just like, oh, good, not the Lakers. Thank God. <laughs> just because I think the existence with every Raptors writer, I think, had at least one or two Lakers fans in their mentions over the past five seven days during this debacle and it was unbearable so for it to not be them and for conventional wisdom insiders to be proved wrong i think was even though we lose Kawhi leonard i think we all sit back and say kind of like thanos at the end of or at the start of infinity war sorry the end of infinity war the start of end game is you're thinking well balance has been restored everything's fine I have, a, I have a sense of peace. How about you? I'm content. I I have no anger towards Kawhi Leonard for leaving and and picking the Clippers. Like that's fine. I I'm in a post championship glow right now, and life's pretty good. So, congrats to him. I I, ho- I honestly hope that he is is happy and successful in Clipperland. Um, and yes, I'm just glad that it wasn't the Lakers. So. Like you said, you hold no ill will. You're not angry at Kawhi Leonard. But just as a a thought exercise, if you were angry at Kawhi, how does that manifest for you? How how do you act if you're actually angry at Kawhi Leonard? What does Matt Schantz do if he's like, mad at Kawhi (laughs) Leonard? (laughs) Um, I'm not really a mad person in general. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, Yeah. so I'd, uh, I'd probably make more jokes on twitter so it wouldn't come across as angry it might just be a little bit snarky and sarcastic um i i didn't want him go to the lakers one because i'm don't like the lakers i don't like kind of that entitlement there uh but also him as a third option in the kind of media epicenter of the nba with lebron james and anthony davis i just i wouldn't think that that would make him a fun guy anymore. And so I'm, I'm happy that, uh, that he picks somewhere that he can still be a primary option and he can um, be a little bit more happy in his day-to-day life, how I picture him. Yeah, not to mention L.A. has fantastic jerseys. The big, bold L.A. script where it's just L and A and has the, it's kind of modeled after the Dream Team jerseys. Those are awesome. I can't wait to see him in those. That would be their good jersey. They do also, you have to admit, have some absolutely atrocious jerseys. Yes, in their okay, lineup. they do. Maybe they should just wear the <laughs> alternate the alternate all the time. That's the best way to do it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like that's a great place to end it. Matt, thank you so much for coming on, man. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And the listeners, if you enjoyed this man, which I do, you can find him on Twitter at M underscore Shantz. If you want to see anything he's written, just go to Raptors Republic. He's putting stuff up there. And also, there's other podcasts if you want to listen to old podcasts that he's been on of this. And after you're done listening to this, I hope you have a blessed day. You enjoy your life. And everything's going to be all right. Thank you so much for listening. And goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 93% 
99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance.